Before we get started today, I wanted to remind you to download and subscribe to The Low Post with Zach Lowe and The Woj Pod with the great Adrian Wojnarski, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Hoop Collective podcast. We talk about the NBA and we're doing it close to midnight here on Monday night. The LA Clippers have have done it again. They have done it again. I just don't know what to say about that team, but we're going to talk about it. Uh, Joining us from Oklahoma City, where he's seen a triple digit temperature day or two in his life, is Royce (laughs) Young. Yeah, nothing... Not not too often like what uh, Pelton's experiencing, that's for sure. We have actually pretty relatively pleasant temperatures out here in the heartland right now, uh, don't we, Royce? I, I've got 10 days of like 80s right now. Yeah, I know. I'm, and it I'm, rained all day. I'm, I think Pelton and I flip-flopped. I think we switched. I know. <laughs> I think that's what happened. So Kevin Pelton is joining us from his home city of Seattle, but he's in a hotel because... Like so many people in uh, the Pacific Northwest, specifically Seattle, he doesn't have air conditioning, and it's 115 degrees there this week. Pelton, I am so sorry. <laughs> so yeah, it sorry. didn't get didn't get quite that high. I think Portland hit like 115. We were in the the mid 100s, but that is like it was this morning 90 in my house when I went back there. So yeah, I definitely needed to uh, to do this. Was lucky to be able to get a hotel room. Wow, man. All right, well, crank it up. Um, um, so, you know, the Clippers, we've talked about on this podcast uh, uh, for the last, you know, couple of months, really for the last couple of years, they are a team that is very difficult to predict. And, um, I mean, I, I wasn't, you know, I actually felt that the Suns hadn't played that well the last two games. Um, Chris Paul and Booker, both were just off their games for various reasons. And the fact that they got the wins, uh, the winning game four and the winning game two, I, mean, I, I thought this could have easily been a 3-1 series in the Clippers' favor. And had the um, had Kawhi been healthy, I thought it would have been a walk 3-1. But Kawhi is not healthy, and the Suns are terrific in close games. They've been terrific in close games for the last three months. And so they earned it. You know, they played really well. And so... Come out in Phoenix. That arena is going freaking crazy. Um, Chris Paul and Devin Booker didn't up shooting percentages. Didn't end up very good, but midway through this game, they both were shooting the ball very well. Booker had his best game since game one, and Chris Paul had his best game of the series. And yet, saying all that, we are three two going back to LA when the Clippers win by fourteen. Um, Paul George has arguably the best playoff game in his career with 41 points, 13 rebounds, six assists. Pelton, um, I'd like to know what your computer says about this team because I can't figure them out. They lost to Vitsia Zubac before the game to a knee injury. Um, they've won two elimination games on the road um, in these playoffs, uh, which is just something you just don't see. Uh, very often, Ty Lu is ten and two in elimination games as a head coach. I don't know, man. It's um, it's 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 quite an interesting playoff run they're having. 
Look, I told you the last time I was on, which was right after they had tied the Jazz Series 2-2, but Kawhi had suffered that injury, which we didn't realize the severity of at the time, that I had given up on predicting the Clippers, and and I don't know that I feel any differently now. I mean, I think to your point, you know, it was interesting that they had the better shot quality according to the second spectrum data when you factor in the uh, the, the players shooting in both games three and game four. And uh, I do think the Suns were maybe a bit fortunate in hindsight to take that 3-1 lead. I still thought that coming home they were going to finish off this series. And you keep waiting at some point for the Clippers to deal with fatigue and and for that to be an issue for them and for Paul George in particular, given these minutes totals he's logging. And it just isn't. But in particular tonight, when Cam Johnson has that three-point play at about the seven-minute mark to make it a four-point game, you're like, okay, Suns have all the momentum, have the home crowd behind him. They're going to go on and win this game. And from that point onward, the Clippers outscore them 18 to 8 the rest of the game. I mean, it's just a remarkable performance by the Clippers. Yeah. Hard to keep up with 15 to 20 shooting for crying out loud. I mean, it's just, it's like jarring to look at the box score and see Paul George's numbers of this. And you were talking about how, like, how the numbers look, ended up looking pretty good for Chris Paul and Devin Booker. It wasn't bad shooting nights, pretty like above average shooting nights by NBA standards in a lot of ways, Brian. But, Man, Paul George, just 15 to 20, 41 points, um, 12 of 14 on two-pointers, hit big shots down the stretch. You know, I, Pelton said that he he kind of expected – I'm not going to act like I was calling a, a, a Clippers win here, but in one part because of Ty Lue's history, I mean, it's like you <laughs> – I don't, I don't know what's harder to beat when you're trying to eliminate him. You know, Teron Lue in, in, the, in his history with this is just kind of – uh, unbelievable with what he seems to install in his team when they're up, when their backs are against the wall. But also I, I think it's just kind of like the Clipper identity right now, which is like such a unbelievable contrast from what we were talking about them with a year ago in the bubble and how they felt like a bunch of front runners and that they didn't really deal with adversity very well. And, and whatever is like, whatever tie whether it was Ty Lue or whatever, you know, kind of come to Jesus moment they had as a team after what happened to them blowing the three, one lead themselves. And their identity now is just like grit and toughness. And Paul George is basically playing an outrageous amount of minutes. They've got wing defenders. They've got tough minded front court guys. Um, And so to me, it's really not all that surprising that they won this game just because I think on top of it for the Suns, there is this weird pressure to that you feel to close out at home, and and I, you know, they they walked into their building up three one, a chance to punch their ticket to the finals. You've got that home crowd roaring, Brian, like you said, and sometimes that that actually can almost work against you. It's like you're you're trying to like appease the crowd, and 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 you kind of get distracted in what the moment is because that's what you're focused on is like the the end result. And I, I'm actually not all that surprised that the Clippers were able to get this one. I still think the Suns are going to win the series. I I, I think I, I think they're just the better team right now um, with all the Clippers injuries. But I mean that that was whatever happens here with the Clippers, they have they have absolutely exonerated themselves completely from from everything that we said about them a year ago. That's what's so sort sort of difficult for the Clippers to swallow about this this situation because last year they. Uh, had they had this team, they I don't know if they win it, but they have a good chance to win it because this resilience and this mindset is what they lacked. And, you know, I don't know how the Lakers would have played in a series against the Clippers. We'll never know. But, you know, you feel like that could have been their year under these circumstances. This year they have the resilience and the mindset and, you know, frankly, a coach that sort of seems to get more out of them. And then Kawhi gets hurt. You know, it's just – 
it's just um, it's a bad set mm-hmm. of circumstances. They're not done though, but I mean, um, it's a bad set of circumstances. And um, you know, if they don't do you, win, do you six think more Brian? Games, do you think though that like? Oh, sorry. I was just going to say you you mentioned uh, Kawhi Leonard getting hurt. I just it was making me think, like you know, Paul George has been so outrageously good, and Pelton, you may have something that can actually like demonstrate this, but like. Doesn't it seem just pretty much staring us in the face that like Paul George is playing better basketball without Kawhi Leonard, and that's not coincidental? Like the the offense completely flowing through him. There's the ball's not stopping. You know the ball movement for the Clippers is is considerably better right now. You know I don't think that they're a better team without Kawhi Leonard by any means, but like I think Paul George is a better player. Yeah, I mean he's definitely stepped up in the stretch. I mean. We have seen his his efficiency come and go. They mentioned that during the broadcast, and I think that's probably you know a fair description of it. But when I mean, I don't know if he's capable of having a night like this. Is he getting up? He's probably getting up twenty shot attempts. But is he controlling the game the way that he did tonight? If Kawhi Leonard is in there, maybe not. I, I think that is fair. Well, look, this is who Paul George has kind of been. For years, he's had playoff series where he's shot under 40% for the series, uh, and his team has won the series. Um, so he has always had this um, maybe he's going to make shots, maybe he doesn't. I, I have, sus- I have my suspicion is because he doesn't have great technique and it t- tends to ebb and flow. But mm-hmm. I know that he has moments where you wonder what the hell he's doing. And I know that he has stretches where he just looks like he can't do anything right. But on balance, his playoff run has been the best playoff run of his career. It really has. Um, and, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know what it's worth. I also point out Reggie Jackson had yet another big game. DeMarcus Cousins had the most points um, he scored in a playoff game in his career. I realize it hasn't been that many, but, you know, he comes up big with um, – Zubach going down, and then Marcus Morris looked healthier tonight than he has. Mm-hmm. He scored 22. Um, I want to just say this for the Suns. I'm just going to get it out of the way right now. I don't know what's going to happen, but I was interested enough to look it up. It would not surprise me. Prepare yourself for this now, everybody. It would not surprise me if Scott Foster is assigned to officiate game six. (laughs) Um, He did game one of this series. He did game three of the Milwaukee-Atlanta series, which was last Friday. So he hasn't, he didn't work on Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Um, I, I almost think that there's no way he would work Atlanta series that fast again for game five. So, or game four, I should say. Uh, no, he worked game two of Milwaukee, uh, Milwaukee-Atlanta last Friday. I don't think he'd work again by game four in that series. I think you're staring down the reality that Scott Foster is going to work game six. So The, the path to the uh, NBA Finals for Chris Paul runs through Scott Foster that's right. in game six. That's right. <laughs> and, 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 yeah. and, and, and the Clippers. And the Clippers, too, yeah, yeah. And this, and the 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 officiating, you know, there was some stuff that happened in this game tonight that amped up the focus on the officiating in this series with the near flagrance and non flagrance. Already, we've had the little drama about, you know, um, 
the ball being out of bounds, you know, whatever, how you want to call that was, it should have been called out of bounds or whatever. Um, so, you know, Patrick Beverly and Chris Paul are, uh, escalating Patrick Beverly and Devin Booker are escalating. Jay Crowder is, um, you know, I thought that, um, say whatever you want about, um, Patrick Beverly and that play with Chris Paul. Um, I thought Jay Crowder sticking his finger, right into Paul George's eye was a uh, much more questionable play than uh, than Beverly coming over that screen and getting up underneath Chris Paul. But I understand Beverly's history. It's mm-hmm. it's difficult to, to, to square I, that. I actually took more issue with Beverly's uh, Beverly miming the flop. I was like, that to me, that was more annoying. It's like, dude, you 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 crashed into him. Don't act like Chris Paul flopped on this one. I don't. I, I took more issue with Beverly doing that, but I actually agree with you about the foul, Brian. I thought that also because Chris Paul's on the floor. I mean, you know, we don't know how bad he's hurt, and so yeah. to to do that when he's you know three feet away. By the yeah. way, I I, <clears throat> I went back and um and watched the replay um, when Beverly. Um, finds out that he that he got the flagrant and he walks back out on the court and he walks past Chris Paul. He says something in his ear and I'm pretty sure he said, "Nice job selling it." Or wait, mm. I think actually, I think he actually said, "Way to sell it." Gee whiz! He said, "Come on." Um, uh, but anyway, that that possession ended up being a five point possession, um, and the Clippers come back and immediately just go on a five Oh run. Uh, that ended up being a moment of resilience for them, despite mm-hmm. how um, that all played out. So um, very, uh, very just, just keep an eye on the way that the, the, the game is going to be officiated because these guys are, it's, you're getting to the point in the series where everybody's getting tired of each other. Um and so I, I will be interested to see. I don't know if Zubach Zubac is a guy who's played through so many injuries. I don't know. I don't know how severe the the knee injury is. I don't know if we're going to see him come back. But uh, um, certainly expecting the Clippers to, um, you know, stand their ground because they do amazing things, Pelton, when they're facing elimination. And this is Teron Lu's track record dating back to his time with the Cavaliers. But, you know, you mentioned Zubats coming back. How much do you play him if he does come back? Because to me, the the fundamental story of tonight's game, and I think it connects back to the, the narrative after that Jazz series, you know, Rudy Gobert got hammered so hard for everything he didn't do against the Clippers' small lineups or was unable to do. And the story was... Well, that same thing won't happen here because DeAndre Ayton will take advantage of them offensively. And I think that was why the Clippers were reluctant for four games to take both Zubats and Cousins off the court against Ayton and go fully small. And then their hand was sort of forced by this injury and it worked perfectly. Ayton was you know, largely a non-factor offensively. 10 points on five of nine shooting three offensive rebounds. The Suns are outscored by 22 points in his 37 minutes of action. They were plus eight with him on the bench. Uh, that, that to me is the, the story is the Clippers have this unique ability more than maybe any team since the death lineup warriors to really take advantage of other teams size while, while they're playing small. And I, I think you got to stick with that. Whatever Zubats's availability is for game six. And what what's interesting too about that is that like Aiton was supposed to be 
at least he was for the first couple games of this series, uh, KP, he was kind of like the antidote to that, you know, like it, it, there was a lot of talk that like, he's not Gobert, he's more versatile. He's more athletic on the perimeter. Um, he guards smalls a lot better. He moves his feet. He's more athletic. All these types of things like kind of build Aiton to be sort of like um, the anti-small ball center, the guy that could kind of break that code to some degree. But yeah, I mean, you saw it just, there, there's something to be said for space and the Clippers are operating in immense amounts of space. It doesn't matter um what you do and, and it's just nba offenses in the modern era are just not designed to like capitalize on a size advantage that's just not that's just not the way that they operate you run pick and roll you drive and you kick and you slash you don't just post up deandre ayton and try to and you know you just overpower people you don't play like a ground and pound style at all and so you know they just that's just not gonna it, it's interesting to me if this was just kind of like um you know, something that just was a one-off situation where the Clippers shot it really well. And so maybe the small ball looked better than maybe it was, or if they've actually truly discovered something. Well, this was just a bad Aiton game. This is the type of game that would drive Suns fans crazy about Aiton in the last few years, because as good as he's been and as great as he's, uh, you know, been in the right place at the right time, making the right plays, his timing has been great. He was just a little bit off. He was, you know, he was his mistiming his jumps on alley oops. He was having rebounds go off his hands. Um, it was just an off game. And so um, when Aiton is good, they really, really benefit. So um, we'll have to see if that's, uh, if that's a one off or if uh, Pelton is right. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hitch, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's ever up there, whether it's the roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. We were speaking a few minutes ago about officiating, and we had a uh, just a freak accident in, uh, I'll say last night, but I guess I should, for the sake of the podcast uh, uh, audience, say Sunday night with Trey Young um, stepping back on, on the official Sean Wright's foot. Um, he had an MRI today, and it revealed a bone bruise. And, you know, I've seen a lot of ankle sprains, Royce. Um, that didn't look that severe, but it didn't look like yeah. it was nothing. And I and tr- uh, Trey, I, I think, put on Instagram, he just put the word frustrating with some emojis today. And I understand why he's frustrated, but it was just a freak uh, yeah. occurrence. And, you know, if this was a regular season, he would probably miss the next game or two, but He's I mean, he's listed as questionable. There's no way he's missing the game. But I wonder how that incident 
could affect this series. I mean, it, it certainly affected game three, right? I mean, you know, it, it, Trey was lights out for the first three and a half quarters of that game or three quarters of that game. Um, played an awesome first half, was getting downhill, had the floater going, hitting pull-up threes. Um, and, and, you know, the, the Hawks offense is as, as well as they've done, I think, in a lot of ways, Brian, to kind of expand their offense outside of just being completely reliant on Trey Young. And, you know, Bogdanovich hasn't played all that great in the postseason. He's been banged up um, lately. Um, but, you know, some of these other pieces that they have, I think, have been really valuable and at least kind of it, – it's not just completely the Trey Young show. You know, like his usage rate isn't like just uh, through the roof and where everything has to funnel through him. But we all know in a playoff series where games grind down to half-court possessions and you want – you know, you you just – it just naturally the ball goes to your best player's hands and it everyone is kind of looking to that player to create something for themselves or for someone else. Um, and Trey in that fourth quarter just was not himself. And and I wondered, Brian, you know, after the play happened, you know, and, and I saw Trey going back to the locker room, I thought, you know, maybe he's just kind of trying to get a breather here. Because, again, it, like you said, it did not look like it was bad. It, you know, it looked like actually a pretty minor ankle roll is what it appeared to be. And so I was actually kind of surprised when they said that it was a bone bruise. And I was like, oh, man, that sounds way worse than – I almost think it would have been better for it to have been a minor ankle roll in a lot of ways, you know, like um, – so uh, he, he, you know, I think he scored three points in that fourth quarter and it was off a three that he hit. Um, he just didn't have that explosiveness downhill. He, he really didn't look all that interested in attacking either, um, which, you know, was very unlike Trey. So I, I look, I, I don't know how, how he's going to do physically in a game four, but it, it, you know, if he's really anything short of a hundred percent, I, I'm a little skeptical about, you know, the Hawks chances to even really keep it all that close really. I mean, especially with the way the Bucks have kind of started to find a little bit of momentum. Chris Middleton playing so well in game three, their defense is swarming all over everyone else. If they don't have Trey Young I going think, for 40, I, I'm, I don't know. I think they win that game, whether Trey Young plays good in the fourth quarter or not, because, well, I guess it's I, agree. Possible. I guess it's possible he could have had a 20 point quarter, but um, I mean, Chris Middleton was, I mean, he was doing things that like that, he was doing the types of things that win you playoff games, you know, 20 points in the fourth right. quarter, you're not winning that. But I mean, I think the Hawks have it close and I think that they're probably looking at game four, like, okay, we can swing this one right back and, and get it to two, two. And now it feels like they're, they're almost uh, up against the wall. It feels like. Pelton, Absolutely. I mean, the, look at the history of three, one, the bucks and the paint in this series. Uh, I'm going to do the math right now. Cause I didn't do it before now. So I'm going to do it right now. Um, the Bucks in the paint, the last two games, are 52 makes out of 76 attempts. That is 68%. Uh, and I think they were similar in game one. Um, I, thought the, I thought the Hawks would present more uh, of a of a rim protection problem because I just feel like you know Capella is a much better rim protector than anybody the Nets had. But you know, to me, the story of this series, the way the Bucks have sort of weathered their bad outside shooting stretches, um, has been how they've just lived in there. And you know, you you allow a team like the Bucks to shoot seventy percent in the paint. I don't think it's it's a feasible way to win four out of seven. It's a it's a tough way to make a living for sure. Yeah, you mentioned that shot quality metric from Second Spectrum earlier. 
the Bucks in this series have gotten better shots uh, by that measure than any team got over the course of the regular season. So that's oh, oh. yeah, and and by a pretty significant margin. So that's that's a real problem if you're the Hawks. I, I think part of it is Capella being engaged on Giannis on the ball. He doesn't have the ability necessarily to be that help defender yeah. when Giannis is driving. It's a great point, and that's one of the challenges that you know a lot of teams love to invert their center and power forward against Giannis and Brook Lopez to take advantage of the fact that. You know, you want size on Giannis, but it does leave it's it's sort of the reverse of what the Bucks like to do defensively, where they don't want to put Giannis and other the other team stars so that they have him in that help role. But yeah, I, I think that the Hawks have been somewhat fortunate in terms of the Bucks have been shooting poorly all postseason, but in this series in particular in, in game one and then you know the first three quarters of game three has you know, kind of hidden that dramatic advantage in terms of shot quality that the Bucks have had. But when that evened out in the fourth quarter, as you said, the the game was already maybe trending that direction even before Trey Young got hurt and exacerbated it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I expect the, you know, I always figure any team in any series is going to have a what I call a home win. Um where they just shoot the ball well, they get great production across the board. It would not surprise me at all if, despite the trend here, that the uh, the Hawks just get a nice home win in Game 4. But um, the Bucks are averaging almost 60 points a game in the paint per game here for three games. Um, I don't know how they mitigate that, but to me, you know, obviously you don't want Chris Milton hitting 15 out of 26 shots, but... You know, Middleton is an inconsistent outside shooter as well. You're gonna, you're gonna live with that. Uh, you want to make sure that the Bucks have to play possession basketball at the end of the games. You want the Bucks to have to score under pressure in the last three to five minutes of the game. I like your chances, whoever you, if you're a good team against them in that situation. And and so I think, you know, you're not going to count on Middleton doing that again. But the 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 the, the, instant, the interior scoring is repeatable, and to me, that's where the Bucks are. The Bucks are. Mm-hmm. We're going to get stops on defense as best we can. You know, we're going to get beat sometimes, but we're going to we're going to use our length and our uh, our physicality on defense to get stops, and we're going to score on the inside. It's a pretty basic game plan, and um, it's gotten them two wins from the finals, and um, something that I, I think is real challenge for Nate McMillan uh, as he looks at his schemes. Uh, heading into game four. Yeah. Well, and the other thing too, Brian, is that, you know, I think Nate McMillan, he, he did what I was wondering if he might do um, after game two in Milwaukee, where the the bucks were so much more aggressive on the ball with Trey young and, and, you know, they played Bobby Portis some uh, more, I should say at the five, but I was wondering if Nate McMillan might try Gallinari at the five, some to try to kind of space the floor, um, try to reduce some of that trapping on the ball that they were doing to Trey, um, because, you know, when you bring Capella up as your screener, I mean, you there's there's uh, you know, it, it really kind of is pretty direct in what the Bucks want to do on the defensive end at that point. And, and Drew Holiday can be really disruptive when Capella is just only a role threat. Um, and so we saw Gallinari at the five, uh, you know, a decent amount in that second half uh, uh, of game three. But, you know, I mean, good grief that that really changes your defensive look, <laughs> you know, when you've got Gallinari playing your five um, and it, it it's it's purely an offensive move. And I think that that puts Nate McMillan in a in a pretty tough little bind trying to figure out, is he going to prioritize his offensive end or his defensive end? All right. So we'll keep an eye on that one. Um, 
I I feel like the Bucks might be getting leverage there. We'll see how Trey Young looks Tuesday night out on the court. Um, so we had some some moves that happened in the league where we've got a few stars involved, and I'm not sure what's going on. And I'm not talking about the Mavericks. That was last week. This week, we've got the Portland Trailblazers hiring Chauncey Billups. He'll be introduced um, Tuesday afternoon in Portland, or I don't know if he'll be in. I think it's going to be a Zoom interview or a Zoom press conference. Um, and then the Jazz, um, you know, Dennis Lindsay was, you know, f- this was reported in the Salt Lake Tribune today. But um, from what I understand, you know, Dennis Lindsay was basically, uh, I don't know if I don't want to use the word forced, but he was instructed to, to, um, to step down from team president in Utah. Um, uh, Pelton, I want to start with uh, Portland. Um, look, I'm just going to tell you right now, I don't know what happened with Chauncey um, and that accusation 20 years ago. I just don't know. Um, I do know that the uh, Blazers believe that they vetted the situation, that the Clippers vetted the situation before they hired um, uh, Chauncey and that uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers, before they offered him their president's job a few years ago, which he turned down, uh, had vetted, vetted the situation as well. I don't know what the truth is. Um, but I do know that Damian Lillard got into an uncomfortable place um, because no matter what Dame wants to say or is being said behind the scenes, Dame was on the record saying that he really liked the concept of Chauncey Billups being the coach. He also wanted Jason Kidd, but he really, I think, also was interested in Chauncey. He, I, I don't think I know. He said it to the Athletic. He said that I like Chauncey. Um, Neil O'Shea, the uh, t- the Blazers' um, general manager, um, has been dancing around and eyeing Chauncey for weeks. I think he knew he was probably going to let Terry Stotts go, and he had sort of started his process, and I think Chauncey was his number one target. Um, but Dame got some serious blowback um, because of um, – uh, you know, the, uh, the, the baggage that uh, Chauncey um, may be bringing in and Dame did not like that feeling. And um, a story came out in Yahoo from Chris Haynes. And I'll just, just be honest, um, Dame and Chris Haynes are very close. Um, you know, I feel like uh, that his sourcing there is probably pretty close to the mark. And I will just tell you from conversations that I have had in uh in Dame's orbit. Um, I have heard the same things. I don't really know. I don't believe based on my conversations that Dame is, um, is serious uh, at this point about saying he wants out, but I do think he was put in a very uncomfortable position and partially because of his own making. Um, And so Pelton, um, the Blazers are now in a situation where they need some stabilizing um, and they need Dame and Chauncey to begin uh, a relationship together. And um, and I, I'm not 100% sure how this is going to play out. Yeah, I'm sympathetic to Dame from the standpoint of, you know, he said that he was not aware of these allegations when he first endorsed Chauncey Billups as the hire. And I can understand that because I had forgotten about this entirely. And I was older than Dame was at the time that it happened. You know, I wasn't covering the league at that point, but until 
Blazer's Edge wrote about it, it was not something I remembered. It's different from, you know, Jason Kidd's very, very public uh, arrest on domestic abuse charges, which, you know, was also sort of related because he was the other coach that, that Lillard endorsed. But I, I think for him to, you know, imply that he played no role whatsoever in this selection seems pretty disingenuous based on, right. you know, you reported last week that he was on that Zoom and his comments prior to the part of the coaching process. So, you know, at the very least, he doesn't seem to have stood up and said, no, Chauncey Bullock should not be our head coach for this reason. And look, it, you know, neither did the Portland Trailblazers. The, the Blazers organization, if you're going to criticize anyone, deserves the bulk of the criticism here, not Damian Lillard, the individual player. So I understand why he feels sensitive to that. But also, I think, you know, for him to use that as a a pretext to eventual an eventual departure seems a bit like a stretch to me, I would say. Royce, you know this team. You've covered them a lot the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. You know, Dame. Um, I just think I saw Dame as all of a sudden being very uncomfortable, and he's a guy who's used to leading and used to having incredible support, especially in Portland. Yeah. And all of a sudden he had he had flopped positions and um he all of a sudden just didn't like where he, where he was at in this thing. Um, and uh, it's complicated. This is not something that players encounter every day. Yeah, I mean, and, and look, I mean, the, the situation just tracking back to the end of the Blazers season was a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and, you know, Damian Lillard has always been very, very rigid about his loyalty to the Portland Trail Blazers. He has really never wavered in that publicly or privately, but we were – at, for the kind of the first time, Brian, when they went out, kind of hearing some of those like kind of like whispers about some antsiness from Damian Lillard, and 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 so then I think you kind of now stack that context onto this current situation, and to me, I you know look, I don't know this to be true whatsoever, but you know with the story coming out um, from from Chris, and you know again like you said with his relationship to Dame, I mean to me it just feels like there's kind of a groundwork being laid here. Um, you know, and and it's and it's Damien's attempt to sort of try to distance himself um, and provide a little bit of cover uh, from from a well, lot of the also, criticism. Yeah, he also wants that. You know, if he does cross that Rubicon and and ask for a trade, he that he's justified in it, right? I think yeah, isn't that, that kind of what he's right. looking for, right? I mean, and so I, I totally recognize that, and I get that. Um, but you know, like like KP said, I mean, I I had no idea about this allegation whatsoever. It was complete news to me, um, and so I think you know that's probably in part where where Damien is very frustrated by this. Is like, you know, he was just uh, you know when he endorsed Chauncey Billups, it wasn't like um, he was fully aware of this and said like. In spite of that, I still do that. You know, that's not like what Damien was doing. And I think that that's right. where a lot of his frustration comes from um, with this. And that's kind of, I think, the, the genesis of the tweet that he put out was to kind of try to cover his back on that sort right. of thing. But, you know, like you said, look, it, it very clearly, it looks like this hire is going to happen. Um, they're going to hold a press conference uh, Tuesday, I believe, uh, to, to announce this hire. Um, and, you know, from that point on, you know, look, we all know that, that Neil O'Shea has a prior relationship with Chauncey Billups. Um, I sat in Neil O'Shea's office and when uh, a couple of years ago when I was doing a, a story on Damien and like how many times Neil compared uh, Damien's leadership to like the, like 
to the the uh, pinnacle of leadership in Neil O'Shea's mind is Chauncey Billups, and he kept comparing him, Damian Lillard, to Chauncey Billups. He's that kind of leader. He's that kind of guy. And so, like you know, I I think like you said, this is the guy that like the Blazers wanted to kind of uh, reorganize them post Terry Stotts. Terry Stotts did a lot of great things for them, but I think that they were looking for a complete reorganization in terms of like accountability and coaching um, and like kind of a player coach that's going to really connect with a lot of the guys on the team. And so like, you know, this hire is going to happen. It sounds it doesn't like, it sound like they're going to go the other way with this. So now it's about trying to pick these pieces up and, and kind of establish some relationships and, and make it work. Right. So from what I understand, you know, that during the hiring process, Dame had conversations with both Chauncey and Mike D'Antoni, whether it was in the formal interview or outside the formal interview. And one of the things that Mike D'Antoni said was that, you know, from what I understand was that, look, um, I helped Steve Nash become a ball handling MVP I helped James Harden become a ball handling MVP. I'm going to come help you become a ball handling MVP. Here's how we're going to do it, ABC. Um, and that Dame was mm-hmm. impressed with Dan Tony, um, but I think I think the message that Dame would like to have known, whether or not it's true or not, you know, I don't know. But I think the message that Dame would like to you know, project is that him talking to Chauncey and talking to Dan Tony wasn't his way of vetting them and saying, I choose one over the other, that he was acting as the, as the captain of the, of the franchise and participating in the process. Not, and I know yeah. that there's nuance in there, but I think he basically wants to keep his hands off of it. Um, but obviously it's, imp- it's an important hire. Um, yeah. So, um, look, at the end of the day, Dame has four years left on his contract at huge numbers. Of course, if he got to the point where he said that he wanted out of there, he would be have to be traded. I will say this about Chauncey, um, and just to be 100% clear, I have not had the opportunity to talk to Chauncey in over a year because this year we um, – you know, we just didn't have the opportunity to get out and talk to, to people in the field like we used to. Um, but I've spent a lot of time talking to Chauncey. Um, we worked together at ESPN. We did, you know, many countdown shows and other shows together. And I remember talking to him when he was considering the Cavaliers job. It was the year David Griffin had left. It was the year before LeBron's last year of his contract. And I remember sitting and talking with him about, you know, listen, I said, listen, I, I think there's a good chance LeBron is going to leave. I, I, I think there's a chance he is, he's got his championship. I think there's a good chance. I, you know, I wasn't sure it was going to be the Lakers, but I did think that was in play, especially after um, uh, Kyrie, uh, you know, asked to asked out. Um, and, you know, I remember Chauncey saying, and again, just to be clear, this was in 2017. This was not in reference to the Portland job, but I remember Chauncey describing to me, he said, Hey, listen, if, if I went there and LeBron decided to leave, I would be okay with that because I have always wanted to build something from scratch. He actually talked about how he and Ty Lu had long, he is, he and Ty Lu have the same agent um, and have had the same agent for their whole careers. Uh, Andy Miller, um, who is now a coach's agent. So he negotiated this contract for uh, Chauncey. Um, he has said, you know, Ty and I have long wanted to 
build something from scratch, um, you know, build it from the ground up. And so, you know, I don't think Chauncey, I think he will try to engage and connect with Dame and, um, and try to make that work. But, um, you know, I don't think Chauncey is going to go into this. The Chauncey that I know is not going to go into this worried that Damien is getting closer to the edge and, and wants out. So, um, you know, I know that it's very tempting to run to the trade machine, Pelton, and start to do Dame Lillard trades. But um, while I definitely see storm clouds over there, I'm not ready to say, based on my conversations, I'm not ready to say that that's where it's at. It's interesting that, you know, you kind of explain that because one of the questions that lingered to me was, is this job still attractive to Chauncey Billups if all of a sudden the idea of working with Damian Lillard is, you know, maybe the most, you know, appealing part of taking the Portland job and and also, you know, the potential of his relationship with Dame seems like a point in his favor. If that's no longer in his favor, does it still make sense for him to take this job? So that kind of helps explain it. But yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lot of pressure on the Blazers this season if this move doesn't change things, you know, Neil Olshay's pre- post-season press conference where he said, you know, the the first round loss is not indicative of this roster. If you go out there and change coaches and you get the same result with the same roster but a di- or a similar roster but a different coach, then all of a sudden I think that focuses a lot of attention on the person who's putting together the roster. And uh, that's where the possibility of further changes in Portland comes into play. And that's, you know, if it doesn't work again, that antsiness that Royce mentioned may increase in Dame's case. Mm-hmm. Well, Royce, one thing that we that was sort of unknown in the league, and when I say in the league, I mean people that I'm talking to, um, you know, we're really not sure where Jody Allen is on this situation. Jody is Paul Allen's sister. She inherited the team after his death. Um, I think it's been three years now. Maybe it's been four, but I, you know, um, and she... Um, you know, there hasn't been, you know, the team in her first year as owner went to the conference finals. So um, they had some success right away. She's, this is the first time she's had overseen any sort of significant change. And so it was unclear, um, you know, how much she wanted to get involved. And, you know, you know, this is an owner who doesn't have much of a track record. So that was another gray area X factor that we're not a hundred percent sure of, but, um, um, she, you know, as time has passed, um, there was a, there was a belief at the beginning that she was just going to sell the Seahawks and trailblazers. And, um, I actually, um, know, uh, somebody who's, uh, who works in the, uh, in the banking world who involve, who, um, uh, it represents, well, I don't want to go too far. Let's just say that um, I know somebody who has checked in regularly on whether the Blazers might be for sale and they've, they are definitely absolutely not for sale. So, um, but I do think that uh, watching how this whole played out, there was some, uh, you know, intrigue about where Jody Allen was going to come down on this. But with this hire, it makes it clear that Neil O'Shea uh, mm-hmm. as, as you mentioned, how much affinity he had for Chauncey Billups when they were in the Clippers together um, is still very, very firmly in control of everything. Yeah. I mean, it, and the way I understand it is Jody Allen was decently involved in the process. Right. Um, 
you know, it's not like she's a completely hands-off owner at this point. But I, I do think that it's, you know, as KP knows, like uh, Neil O'Shea has consolidated power pretty strongly, and he runs the Blazers very directly. He's, uh, you know, one of the longer tenured uh, GMs in the league at this point. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, you know, it, it back to the, the D'Antoni thing, though, Brian, it's funny to me that that, that you know, I can see the appeal there, <laughs> but it, like the Blazers, like clear and direct issue, uh, the second half of the season and in the postseason was on the defensive end. It was not about like needing more offense from Dame or needing more offense from like the team. It was like they had like uh, considerable defensive issues and like matchup issues. And uh, you know, as appealing as I, I assume D'Antoni might have been, uh, that uh, that didn't seem like that would have been the fix. Yeah, and I know that um, uh, uh, you know that there that Becky Hammond was um, uh, you know a serious candidate there. Um, but, uh, I do think when it came down to the end, um, that it was Dan Tony or, or Chauncey. And frankly, um, I have to say, uh, you know, I think this is what Neil O'Shea wanted all along. This is the guy mm-hmm. he wanted and he had a process because I think that's what you have to do. Um, but, um, uh, this is the way it came down. Um, so I talked about Chauncey wanting to build something from scratch. Well, Dennis Lindsay built this Utah Jazz team from scratch. He drafted uh, Rudy Gobert. He drafted Donovan Mitchell. Um, he was the guy who, uh, you know, you know, hired Quinn Snyder. Um, uh, everybody Great on the Mike squad. Conley. Right. Every, you know, signed Bogda- uh, Boy- Boyan Bogdanovich. Um, um he has had his hands on the wheel for the entire run here. And this crowning achievement, um, this, this team, this is a great team that just um, had some things go against him and, uh, and lose. And now he's out. Now it's not unusual when you see a new owner as Ryan Smith is for there to be leadership changes that has happened throughout the history of the NBA um, sometimes it happens fast. Sometimes it happens, you know, after a year or two, but, um, so it's not surprising. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavily on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue and ready for the play. And boom, Onyeho Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liquor, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. But this one was complicated. Uh, I, and, and Dennis said in his statement that he... Um, and he had been thinking about reducing his his role and taking a step back, and I believe that to be true. But this um, this move at this time, I believe, um, was 
precipitated by Ryan Smith. And I do think that um, Dwayne Wade, who he's brought in to be a co-owner, but also be an advisor. I think Dwayne Wade is seriously concerned about Donovan Mitchell's desire to stay there long-term. And I think the way, you know, there was a number of things that happened that led to this primarily. um, And this is covered by the Salt Lake Tribune. I don't want to make it sound like I'm not giving them credit, but um, you know, it was an open secret in the NBA that Quinn Snyder and Dennis Lindsay had very a very poor relationship. Uh, one of the one of the not something that was uh, a good thing. And um, there are disagreements. Um, some of the stuff is is somewhat known. Some of the stuff is private, but was some classic stuff. You know, coaching coaches not to, not valuing developing players. Um, you know, snide, you know, backstabbing stuff or whatever. It's endemic in the NBA. It happens. Um, but I would say that um, even though Justin Zanuck has been promoted to the, you know, the lead decision maker and Justin has working a very long time to get this job, Dwayne Wade is going to influence changes. And the reason that Dwayne Wade is going to influence changes is because the way Donovan Mitchell saw this season unfold, specifically how his ankle injury was handled in the playoffs, really unnerved him. And um, he was in a bit of a rough spot with the franchise, Royce, um, near the end of the year. And look, he's starting a brand new four-year contract, the Max. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not implying anything, but I, you know, one of the big reasons why Ryan Smith brought in Dwayne Wade. And yes, Dwayne bought into the team, but I will promise you, he got a very favorable price. <laughs> Let's just say the Lakers just sold um, 27% of their team for, uh, you know, over a billion dollars uh, reportedly. Uh, I do not believe Dwayne was paying those kind of prices. I think he got a very sweetheart deal. And one of the reasons he did was Ryan Smith wanted to have Dwayne, wanted to have Donovan Mitchell stay in Utah for the long term. And so Royce, I, I don't think the maneuvers are done in Utah. Yeah, I mean, and you know, you mentioned just the the injury management in the postseason, and and you know, it goes with uh, you know, you need to mention also the context of the Jazz uh, failures in the postseason. It it did have to do with Donovan Mitchell's health. It had to do with Mike Conley's health. You know, this was the West's number one seed. Um, these are the types of bad luck things that can happen, and you know, I think it's pretty obvious that the the change from from Dennis Lindsay. Uh, you know, him stepping back into an advisor's role was less like performance related and more about, you know, what, what I think the jazz are anticipating in the future. Clearly, you know, we saw this in Dallas with a lot of the, the turnover that is when you have a young star that is on a controllable contract, you are trying to position yourself as much as you possibly can to extend the amount of time that that star remains in your market. And like, you know, Teams go to extreme levels to try to do this. I mean, we've we've seen it, especially when you're a smaller market, when you can't just rely on the fact of your zip code to just kind of re-sign the player for you. You've got to accommodate that player. You've got to figure out ways that you can uh, toe the line between catering to them, but also not going too far where you alienate them from their team and you, you know, you uh, you baby them to a degree. So you know, that's where the Jazz, I think, are right now trying to kind of find that that. Uh, that sweet spot with Donovan Mitchell. And also I think it, it's worth mentioning too, that like, I don't know how much this factors into Donovan Mitchell's 
uh, feelings about the jazz, but like, you know, there's been issues with within the jazz fan base that Donovan Mitchell has had to speak out about, whether it was uh, fans saying racist and vulgar things to Russell Westbrook. Um, there's been other issues with, uh, like the jazz fan base that has popped up where Donovan Mitchell has kind of been placed front and center to kind of have to try to like, you know, be the guy, be like the voice of reason to kind of calm things down. And so when you think about like, I don't know, I don't know how much affinity for the market that he holds as well, Brian, you know, I don't know if that's, that's something that is, you know, he may, he may love the the jazz organization. I don't really know, but you know, there's, there's been issues within, uh, the Utah jazz, uh, beyond the team that I think that Donovan Mitchell is probably considering. Yeah, Pelton. Um, so I think Utah is. It's kind of it's kind of unfortunate because this team was, I thought, had a really good chance to win the title this year. And look, Donovan Mitchell's ankle was bad. Mike Con- Mike Conley's hamstring was bad. Um, they could be the ones who were playing tonight. That game could have been in Utah the, tonight. That were, they were they were playing to 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 go to the finals. Um, you know they've obviously got some issues, but I don't know if this team needs a a makeover. But I I do think there's going to be changes coming. No, I mean one of the things about this eight days ago, James Jones was named executive of the year. Dennis Lindsley finished, I believe, second in that That's voting, true. and that that was we've sort of gotten desensitized to this because of the fact that we've seen coaches of the year get fired, most recently with Dwayne Casey in Toronto. But for executives, it's much less common to see that happen, uh, a change after that. And it was kind of more, I think, more of a, I don't want to say lifetime, but the accumulation of building this roster. Because if you look just at the last year, the moves are a bit more questionable. But the the challenges get greater going forward because this is a team that is already into the luxury tax uh, for next season if they guarantee Mieone's salary and has Mike Conley as a free agent. You know, Ryan Smith has clearly signaled a willingness to spend into the luxury tax, but it's Salt Lake City that you're not going to the other aspect of not being in one of those major markets is you're not going to have the same sort of local TV and sponsorship revenue that those places have that allows them to pay the tax and how you're going to manage that over the next few years with Gobert making, you know, up to, you know, an average of 40 million on his extension. Donovan Mitchell upward of 30 million on his extension is going to be really interesting because, you know, I think it, it was mentioned in that piece, part of the the dispute was over recent draft picks, not playing much. Well, those guys, when they got a chance to play, didn't necessarily indicate that they deserved that opportunity or merited more opportunity. And they're going to have to find some guys on the cheap to help fill out this bench. So you have better depth, you know, at guys 11 through 15 than you've had the last couple of years. So, um, Shane Battier has already been mentioned as a candidate to join the front office. Um, Shane was obviously a teammate of Dwayne Wade's with Miami for um, several years. Um, uh, He resigned from the Heat's front office two weeks ago in kind of a surprising move because um, he was regarded as a guy who might be with the Heat for a long time and you know, there's been some speculation uh, throughout the league that maybe this was in the works um, since then, and Battier would be a would be a candidate, regardless of how it of how that happens, of how it of how it um, plays out. I think the important thing is this is a team that has a top fifteen player. I don't know, he didn't make All NBA because he got hurt. I mean, I don't I don't want to debate, but he's a he's an ascendant star who's a little bit uncomfortable who's also a championship contender that is undergoing major, potentially significant 
um, leadership changes and how that might affect not only what they do in the short term, but also more the long term. So, um, you know, I, 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 we'll see. I mean, Ryan Smith, I mean, he bought the team. He can do with it what he wants, but um, you know, let's just say that executives out there and, and teams out there that are in the hunt for star players, they have Damian Lillard's name on the board, sort of high up and then maybe down, not high on the board, but down on the sort of middle right side of the board, they have Donovan Mitchell. And look, I think what Ryan Smith and Dwayne Wade are trying to do is push Donovan Mitchell off of that board. Say, guys, his max contract is just starting. We've got him under contract. He's not going anywhere. He's going to be more comfortable here. Um, but um, it's it's un, it's unusual. You know, Utah is a place, um, uh, Royce, where there is a lot of stability. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Jerry Sloan was literally the coach for my almost my entire lifetime when he uh, when he retired and Dennis Lindsay had many job opportunities before he took the Utah job um, he had been a very successful assistant executive and he took it in large part because he liked the idea of having support and stability and so um, this is an unusual situation but definitely something that is beyond just what's going to happen with the jazz in the next season yeah, and in the Jazz too, in the in the past couple of years, Brian, as you know, I mean they've they've really invested in basketball operations. They've revamped their practice facility, their health and science. I mean they've like they've made significant investments as, as every team has. I mean it's not like they're they're unusual in this, but you know they're one of these teams that I think recognizes the market that they're in, and they kind of have to up their accommodations for players. You know, I mean, you have to, you have to really kind of like uh, focus in on amenities when it comes to your organization. And, and, you know, I've seen a lot of uh, the jazz stuff firsthand covering playoff series and being out there for, for uh, games and stuff. And, you know, they, they've got a lot of first class amenities themselves. So, you know, I think that there is a lot of, uh, focus and investment in that regard. And I mean, that all that sort of stuff is done up front to try to entice not only players to maybe come, come to, uh, Salt Lake City, but also to keep players there. So, you know, I think that for them, that's, you know, 100% their focus is, you know, they 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 repaired the Donovan Mitchell-Rudy Gobert relationship, you know, which was kind of like the first fracture that they had to to figure out a way to, you know, throw a cast on and, and to get repaired. Um, it seems like that they overcame that pretty, pretty well. Um, now they've got another uh, bump that they've got to try to kind of sort through to some degree. I mean, and look, we haven't, you know, I, I don't think that, uh, like you said, I think that you know Donovan Mitchell is obviously a player that I think a lot of opposing teams have their eyes on. But you know, I I certainly haven't necessarily heard any like loud grumblings about Donovan Mitchell's comfort level with the Utah Jazz necessarily to this point. But these are the types of things that when the boat starts rocking a little bit, things can get upset and and they can kind of spiral downhill really quickly. I mean, it, to to sit here and think that we've had a discussion about Damian Lillard, if you would have told somebody that a year ago, they would have thought like you were absolutely insane. So, I mean, these things come really fast in the NBA where, you know, star player can be disgruntled quite quickly when you, when you uh, otherwise didn't think so a couple of weeks ago. Well, Ryan Smith is a really smart guy. And um, he, I think recognized immediately when he bought the team that, Really, one of wasn't priority one is priority one a is to create the type you know frankly create the type of bond with a market and a team that Dame Lillard has had with Portland, mm-hmm. 
uh, it's kind of been an unshakable bond to this point. And um, I don't think the Jazz are there with Donovan. And so he wants to make it there. And that's, I mean, you know, the, 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 the bringing Wade in was not symbolic. Like, you know, Shaq getting a, a piece of the, of the Kings, you know, and showing up at the press conference. Um, he, he is a real engaged factor from what I am told. So we'll see how Brian, that plays out. Um, one name we haven't discussed is Danny Ainge, who's reportedly close to, to Ryan Smith. Now that doesn't, you know, fit yeah. in the same way as the people you mentioned in terms of creating more diversity in the jazz front office after the departure of Walt Perrin. But, uh, that was mentioned in that, that's all like Tribune article. Is, is he potentially in the mix? And there's a lot of assumptions. I mean, for as far as I know, Danny Ainge is still going to, he's definitely helping this, the, uh, the Celtics through their whole draft process. He's still, you know, helping Brad Stevens with the transition, as far as I've been told. Um, I do think that it would not surprise me if I know that Danny Ainge has long planned to retire to Utah, um, you know, or spend a lot of time in Utah in his retirement. I mean, he went to BYU. He's um, got a lot of ties there. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it aligns with a lot of things. And, I, you know, if, if you're going to have someone with that kind of experience willing to work for your organization, you know, I think um, I think that, you know, you definitely look at it. But I don't think he I don't think he is a candidate to come in and lead the organization. I do believe that Justin Zanuck will be leading the basketball decisions, but it would not surprise me if there was a hire or two um, that basically brought Dwayne Wade <laughs> and the Dwayne Wade family uh, and, and Lisa Joseph uh, next to, you know, Gabrielle Union. Lisa Joseph is uh, is right there, is part of the Dwayne Wade family. Trust me. Um, uh, so if that happens, you know that Dwayne Wade is really riding shotgun with Ryan Smith. So um, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, all right. Uh, thanks for listening to the Who, uh, Hoop Collective uh, podcast. Uh, we've uh, got some uh, serious cooking here, so we'll see uh, how the rest of the week plays out. And uh, thanks to Jackson, our producer, and we will talk to you later this week.